2: welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Max Linsky and Aaron Lemmer are also hosts of the show, although I did the interview this week. I welcome them regardless.
3: Evan did the interview this week. Evan did the interview last week. It's it's debatable whether we're still co-hosts of this show. (laughs) Great being a fly on the wall for your interviewing. Uh, What did you get into this week? This week, actually, I did this interview a few weeks ago,
2: uh, but I talked to Evan Hughes, and uh you guys know evan hughes you've read his writing in a bunch of different magazines the times magazine new york magazine etc evan and i go way back he wrote one of the great atavist magazine stories back when i was editor. white boy rick yep white boy rick the trials of white boy rick it was a national magazine award finalist did that movie get made is there a white boy rick movie a movie got made (laughs) okay that movie I it would ma- not be accurate to say that movie got made. I don't
3: want I don't want to touch on any sensitive topics if I just went into a hornet's nest. Is it is the movie not based you, on the histo- you,
2: you done did it, Aaron. Okay. I, I, you are correct, Aaron. The movie is not based on that story. And in fact, we talked about this wow. um partly because Evan wrote a book which is called Pain Hustlers. And it's a book about this company that develops uh, basically a novel form of fentanyl, and then they spent years persuading slash bribing doctors to prescribe it extensively. It's all part of the opioid epidemic and uh, eventually became the subject of indictments, investigation, and a big trial. And the book kind of unravels this dark side of the farm industry. The book is also now a movie that just came out on Netflix by the same name, Pain Hustlers, starring Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. So we talked about Evans reporting and we talked about the story, but we also talked a little bit about Hollywood and interfacing with Hollywood and what that's like, because he and I together had this previous
3: experience around his uh, his out of a story. I uh, look forward to that. Uh, the show is uh, brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make it. And now here's Evan with Evan Hughes. Evan Hughes, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> You're the second
2: Evan guest. Well, besides I've also been a guest on the show myself, so I guess in a way, third. It's nice to have more Evans on. Evan Osnos was on. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Evan Osnos. We should form like Not a, personally a club. Me either. <laughs> um, I didn't interview him, but you you have a special place in my mind in our shared name because I don't know if you remember, but one of the things that I do when I want to like remind myself of something is I send myself an email. So I'm always like sending myself an email that's just say like buy paper towels or like pick up this at the store. Right. And your email would often come up right next to my own. And one time I sent you a completely bizarre email that was like, uh, buy a toilet cleaning solution or something like that. And <laughs> <laughs>
3: And I replied with several like, question marks, yes. I think. Right? Exactly. Just like, <laughs> uh, I don't really know what this is referring
2: to. So uh, so anyway, it's nice to have on uh, a fellow Evan. And also we've worked together when I was at Atavist. We That's ran right. your uh, story, which is one of my favorite Atavist stories of all time. Uh, the Trials of White Boy Rick. Thank you. Which I want to talk about. But I sort of realized that... Um, like I, your history, as far as I know you as a writer, kind of starts mm-hmm. at that point, like mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. when It started. So 2010, 2011, I remember like seeing your stories in the all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote the story about the guy who created Sea Monkeys. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. That really stuck with me. But I don't actually know how you got into to the business before that. So I wanted to just find that out. Yeah. What was kind of like the genesis of your getting into journalism?
3: Uh, so like, First journalism gig not too long after college was uh, working at a now defunct political magazine called The New Leader Hmm. and worked there a couple of years. It was tiny, you know, it had kind of an august tradition many decades, Um, but, you know, There weren't that many people reading it by this point. Um, (laughs) There are many such magazines. (laughs) Yes. It was my quite elderly boss and me, like, editing the whole magazine. So, in a way, there was the trial by fire experience of, like, I edited a lot of pieces, which normally you wouldn't at such an entry-level job, but, like, someone had to. Um, So, worked with some writers directly, and that was, you know... It was a good experience in that respect. Kind of weird, sort of claustrophobic office environment, but <laughs> uh-huh. there you go. Where was it? Was it in New York? Or? Yeah, it was in New York. Uh-huh. And then and then, right from there, I got a job at the New York Review of Books. Um, I worked for one of the two founding editors, both now deceased, were still there, Bob Silvers and Barbara Epstein. Yeah, legendary and I, editors. And I worked for Barbara. It was kind of an interesting setup where there was the two editors and then they each had their sort of team of assistants. And they were kind of like the bickering married couple at the top. And we were all trying to sort of like (laughs) mediate. And that was great. I felt like I I got in the mix of Literary New York and got to know a lot of people. And it it was a fun job. Back then, it
2: seemed like you were very into the literary end of things like yes yes. yeah with if journalism is sort of in one sphere and it merges with the literary
3: world in different ways but New York Review books is a little more a little more highfalutin a little more nerdy a little less like journalistic absolutely and that kind of was like a little bit of a spectrum that I think I've traveled where I sort of began you know while I was at the New York Review I started writing book reviews which is a pretty common sort of like entry point and then that moved to like profiling some writers when their books were coming out, things like that. And then like first kind of glossy magazine story was New York Magazine writing this piece about um, Jeffrey Eugenides, Jonathan Franzen, David Foster Wallace, their history together, Mary Carr, and the exception of Wallace. Of course, I, I, I interviewed them all and that was that was a fun story to report. And that kind of gave me a little bit of like reporting chops that I was sort of doing that kind of story. But it was still in the cultural realm, like you say, the mm-hmm. literary realm. And then White Boy Rick was probably like the first story that was more like hard. I don't know how you, not hard as in difficult. Like hard but, reporting. But hard reporting, you know, adversarial reporting to some degree and um, first crime story. Previous to that, do you feel like your goals were to be a literary writer? Like, did
2: you have goals to write fiction? You were interested in fiction. Like, you ended up writing a book about literary Brooklyn. That's I, right. I assume out of that, I did article. leave that out. Was that more your aim? And then you turned into
3: journalism. I didn't. I didn't have the aim of writing fiction, but I was. Yeah, I was formerly sort of more interested in like criticism and in writing about literature and in writing about writers and I think I got drawn to the world of reporting where like you know in writing the book Literary Brooklyn there were a few interviews but mainly it was a book that like I wrote in the library you know I Uh, wrote it by like reading and by thinking and then I got sort of attracted to the world of like actually meeting people (laughs) and talking to them even though I was scared of it like frankly and like kind of still am you yeah, know like yeah. like cold calling people it never gets like less scary i yeah. think i definitely have called many people who like you just know are not going to be happy to hear from you yeah <laughs> and and you know are are going to try and like shut down the conversation or be worried about it you know worried about who you are and you know it's not the most comfortable thing and maybe that's like partly why i'm drawn to it it's like that challenge of yeah. like overcoming something that isn't natural to you. So let's talk about White Boy Rick, because I was
2: uh, editing the Atavist and we had this amazing editor, Charlie Homans, who was actually running the, um, the magazine itself and your idea for the story came in and I want to know what prompted you to look at a drug dealer from Detroit who was, had been in prison since the eighties the and like dig into this story.
3: Yeah, I remember. I mean, I feel like the the sort of origin stories of my stories are never very interesting like uh, like many of my my best story ideas were like well I read an article in the New York Times <laughs> yeah. and you know I, have I just too, felt yeah. like, you know, digging deeper into this thing that was going to pass as like a one or two day news story mm-hmm. would, you know, could be good. Actually, that was the Argentina story. It was like that. But Yeah, in this case, I was reading, I think it was the website, The Fix, which is like about drugs and drug policy. And there was this column that was basically like free white boy Rick was the sort of theme of the column. And it seemed a little like credulous. I wasn't sure, you know, did this white boy Rick guy deserve to be freed? I don't know, you know. But there was a quote in it that caught my eye, which was like an FBI agent was like going to bat for Rick, Wershy, white boy, Rick, and saying, you know, there's a lot of corruption in this story and he should be out. And you know, that's not that common. I mean, he was an ex FBI agent, of course, yeah. making that statement, but that, that caught my eye a little bit. So I think he was the first person I contacted. And then I contacted Rick's lawyer, and he quickly like arranged a phone call where I talked to him in prison.
2: And and you should say a little bit who who this guy is and like why why yeah. he was in prison at all. Yeah,
3: yeah. So he was a teenager growing up in a tough neighborhood in Detroit in the eighties. Eighties, you know, Detroit was saturated with drugs uh, in in certain neighborhoods um, and and crime. And he sort of like fell in with a crowd of drug dealers in his local neighborhood and then became one himself. And what was sort of notable about him and gave him the nickname was that like he operated in a world that was like 95 percent black. And he was this little white dude who was like 15 years old and like moving a lot of cocaine. And, you know, he had this like bowl cut and (laughs) he just like he wasn't what people pictured. And uh, he was a so-called weight man, meaning he he didn't like run a crew that was dealing on the street. he He bought and sold cocaine in volume, like by the kilo, and then he would like sell it to other dealers who then had their like army of people out on the street and stuff. Um, it was kind of a big <laughs> a big job <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for a teenager <laughs> for a teenager. But the sort of secret side of the story was that. Somewhat of a spoiler was that all (laughs) along, he was an informant for the FBI, and there was some reason to believe, like when I looked into this, that in fact he was kind of in the drug world in the first place because of the FBI. Yeah, that the FBI had had come to his father, who was kind of like a slightly shady hustler guy who who sold guns and they thought he would know something about the drug scene in the neighborhood and the father was kind of like you know what my son knows some of these people and that, that through that he became an informant so he was playing both sides but like this was highly dubious for the FBI to be you know using a 14 15 year old kid as an informant and kind of like pushing him to make controlled buys and things like that and then like the relationship was cut off with the feds and then like shortly thereafter he got busted and like nobody came to his aid when Mm -hmm. that happened no no government official was like hey hey go easy on this guy he's one of ours no that did not happen and a lot of people denied that there had ever been any relationship and then like There's a whole second chapter. I don't know how much detail you want here. But there's a whole other chapter that he like then became an informant from jail and helped like uh, bring about a pretty big sting. So it was like this question of like, why was he still in? First of all, it was like many, many years because it was under a draconian drug law. that was was basically life. Rolled back. Yes. He was serving life and um, he no longer is.
2: I didn't I'm not sure I fully realized that you hadn't done a lot of that kind of reporting. So how did you set about then because you talked you ended up talking to like guys who had led those big drug crews in Detroit and who had gone to prison and were now out and all these FBI agents and all these cops that had been involved. How did you sort of like set about figuring out how to get them all?
3: I guess the the old-fashioned technique of like one person leading to another, you know, that that Rick and his lawyer you know they had some advocates like that former fdi agent and they said oh you should talk to so and so and then partly they were saying like you should also talk to this guy on the other side of the story uh and see what he has to say because i don't know that anyone's ever confronted him with this and you know those were scary calls and then i remember like i traveled to detroit partly to go see rick who was like in upstate michigan in the middle of nowhere but then i also spent some time in detroit and got kind of like a tour by like a veteran cop who had been on the scene in the 80s and like rick was a known name to him and and uh and and all the people he ran with so i mean i think part of what helped is that like enough time had passed that Mm. you know a lot of these people were were former cops or former feds and so they were more free to speak or or, you know, they, they, they kind of like, and some of them enjoyed telling the old war stories of like <laughs> when things were truly crazy in Detroit.
2: That's it. story has some of the great moments of like the interview moments. Like there's, I remember so distinctly, there are several people who they don't even realize he's still in prison and there's mm. you're interviewing them. And then at some point they say, well, whatever happened to Rick, like, where is he
3: now? And, right. and you're, you say, well, he's still in prison. And they're just,
2: they, one of them just says, wow.
3: Yeah, that was, I, I, you know, I, I had been trying to reach this guy who was another former federal agent, but he wasn't like an advocate for Rick. And, you know, I tried to reach him, but he ended up being key because he kind of like confirmed that there was this relationship with the feds, which, you know, I needed like some, I needed more corroboration of that. And then he was like, "What what's up with him now? You know? And, and I I understand why it amazed him because there was a period it's weird in the 80s like criminal justice policy if you took a murder conviction in state court around that time I think the average sentence was like eight or ten years Mm. and that's why like when drugs you know in the crack era that became this campaign to come down harder so drugs were being cracked down more heavily than violent crime so so that's why he had this law that like put rick away for life but it just didn't add up that like all these years later like what's he doing in jail and like all these guys he ran with who were like killing people are out and about the guy
2: who tried to kill him yes. in like a drive-by
3: that <laughs> yes that was out yes that guy was out <laughs> and like giving interviews about it <laughs> yeah. you know
2: the reason i love that story is the structure of the story it has my favorite structure that is it's hard to find a story where this structure works i'm not sure i can think of that many others but the structure of the story i'll just lay it out myself is Mm -hmm. like the whole story is told and then basically almost the whole story is told again but with entirely new information and so you kind of see it from the other side all the things that you missed are now revealed to you in a retelling of the story who came up with that
3: that was me i and that was like a pretty early realization that i wanted to do it that way and i will tell you i directly ripped off david grand Mm. (laughs) which i told him (laughs) which i told him later and he was very gracious about but it's a good man to rip off a structure from uh, yeah i mean i don't know if you remember the story but it it did make a huge impact called trial by fire about cameron todd willingham Mm -hmm. um who was put to death and like may have been innocent. And that's kind of the structure of that story. It's actually like a little bit more complicated than that, but that was like, there was some germ of that idea that like he tells the story and then doubles back and leads you to question everything you've learned so far. And like, it can be a kind of like phony device, I think, because you're, you're, you're arguably like withholding information from the reader in that first part. Um, but I mean, not arguably you are withholding information, but it, it, as you said, it allows you to see both sides because that is, that is a narrative that people believed while his career was going on. Like the first version of the narrative, just in short was like, he was this young kid who became like a drug capo in, in, in Detroit And then the second version of the narrative is like, well, all along he was an informant for the FBI and they arguably betrayed him and he was, he was kid. And was he ever really that big a dealer too? Like Mm -hmm. that becomes in doubt and he's still in jail and all of that. And I think that that interview we talked about was kind of like the cutoff point where it was like, Rick had tried to claim when he was busted, like, oh no, no, I had this relationship with the FBI. And like, no one believed it. And everyone mm-hmm. threw water on the story. His own lawyer threw water on the story. And then like, here was this guy decades later saying, no, that's true.
2: And when that story, um, when when you finished that story and that story came out, you then did more sort of crime. So if you mentioned the Argentina story, which is a GQ story that has a murder in it as well. And did that sort of take hold as like, ah, I want to kind of like head in this direction?
3: I think so. Yeah. There was a little bit of, um, you know, I, I, I think like criminal justice policy interested me, you know, it wasn't so much like the crime itself, but like how does society view that crime? How do we treat that crime? What does it mean to have a kid who dealt drugs and, and like like how do we deal with that like should he still be in jail what about if he was informing you know and so um and and the the gq story had this sort of wacky element that the guy was like a 9-11 conspiracy theorist who was a suspect and it kind of got into the politics of argentina and the u.s because basically he was an american went to argentina and then was like fighting extradition from argentina and extradition is a political process, basically, like the power structures had to decide whether to like hand him over to the US. And they were very suspicious of the US. So like the history of, you know, international relations came into it. So I was always looking for some like other piece beyond just like the crime itself and the who done it.
2: That brings us to pain hustlers a little bit, because one of the things that I'm interested in knowing is like why you gripped onto that story because like even when you first found the story I feel like and the book talks about this like the opioid epidemic was already a thing like that was already a known quantity yes and so what was it about describe this particular story and what hooked you in to want to take it on when you originally did I guess for magazine story
3: yeah yeah so that was <laughs> that was one of these, oh, I read a news story in the New York Times, but it was like late 2016, some of the top executives of this company that the book is about, this opioid manufacturer were arrested. And like later, even the top guy was arrested. And that was kind of exciting because by that time I was reporting the story. So like, uh, you know, it was a big development to hear that, you know, the big boss had been rousted out of bed by the FBI. But I think the big thing was, That a common narrative about the opioid epidemic and really about wrongdoing in pharma is that like companies will get busted for like illegal marketing schemes or what have you. But like what happens in those cases is that essentially an extended negotiation occurs between the government and the company and they like arrive at a settlement and the company pays a number and it's sometimes a very big number Um, it's not always the proverbial slap on the wrist exactly, but it is like, no one goes to jail. Mm -hmm. No one ever goes. And in fact, some of those top executives go on to have a great career at some other place. Uh, Sally Yates, who used to be, you know, when she was at DOJ, like she, she tried to institute uh, this policy where she was like, look, you know, corporations don't commit crimes. People do. And so like, why aren't we going after the individuals? And so that was what kind of made it a landmark case is that they went after the individuals. Mm-hmm. And that sort of changed the whole dynamics of the story because, you know, you can't settle a case when you're you're being tried <laughs> right. on criminal charges. You can plead guilty and then you're a convicted felon or you can go to trial and fight it. And these guys chose to go to trial. And like, of course, a trial is kind of like, a journalistic dream and also is like a great public service because what happens is all the dirty laundry comes out and you know and that's part of why like drug companies negotiate settlements they don't want the dirty laundry to come out they don't want the eternal emails as exhibits in court so it all came out and you know i was there for the trial it was like three and a half months you know there were some tedious days, but, but I actually felt really like privileged to be there kind of seeing how the sausage gets made in the drug industry and in opioids in particular.
2: Yeah. The, t- 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 I feel like people who've never attended one of these like really long, uh, elaborate federal trials, like there's so many, like all those internal emails and there's a bunch of internal emails, someone has to get up on the stand. And and like read basically have it be read to them or like do you recognize this so like it has to be introduced in this way that you kind of can you just
3: give me all these documents yeah. <laughs> like, exactly exactly every every exhibit has to come in through a witness so they right. they have to put people up there who kind of like have nothing to do with the case <laughs> yeah it's funny
2: but then the other side of that I mean it is a dream but I feel like there's a nightmare too maybe it's not a nightmare for you but where I mean this was being covered. Like mm-hmm. in the New York Times, in the Boston Globe, because the trial one of the trials was big trials taking place in Boston. Yep. And how did you kind of like, I mean, both sort of like reporting-wise, but also like emotionally navigate the idea that you are locked into this story mm-hmm. and like stuff is dribbling out every day. At the time there's a big revelation, it's gonna be reported somewhere.
3: Yeah. I think you just get used to that in your career that like especially if you do like long form work. And I, I know like I have a friend who does this work who, who, who jokes that it should be called slow form journalism because <laughs> like it's slow. It, it is heavily edited. It's heavily uh, fact-checked. And like chances are you're not going to be the first, maybe you're going to be first to reveal some piece of it. I think you sort of make peace or I have made peace anyway with like, I'm not the scoop guy Uh like i'm the person who comes in and i'm good at like telling the story in a thorough and deep way and then like yes there's always some scoops around the edges maybe i talk to someone who's never talked to other press and that's exciting and that usually does happen but it's not like the first time the insta story insta is the name of the company it's not the first time the insta story has been told like yes by the time my book was published like frontline had done a documentary hbo had done a documentary uh, a lot of TV and, and mm. daily news coverage as well, but, you know, it was the only book and it felt like that, that allowed, you know, a certain depth that like, you're not going to get in TV and, you know, it's just a different animal. So what can you do, but kind of like make peace with it. Right. There was like one bummer is that like, I talked to someone pretty key and senior in the company and she hadn't talked to anyone else. And it was sort of a long campaign to get her to talk to me. And then like after that, she decided to speak to HBO. (laughs) But HBO like aired first. So it looked like, like they had it. I was like, oh, come on. You got to do that to me. (laughs) That's, it's one
2: of those things that uh, I find like painful when that happens to me, my reporting process. And other people will say like, it doesn't matter. No one's going to remember. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And like, it's hard for me to let go of it. But then when I see it happen to someone else, I'm kind of like, it doesn't, like, I didn't see the HBO thing. Like, I don't have any idea. And I actually, like, read the book. I follow this closely-ish,
3: you know. Right. And I think you can fall into this kind of, like, journalistic vanity of, like, you know, like, who has it? Who has it first? And, like, often the public doesn't care. They just want it told well. And they're not in it, like, comparing notes about, like, who tweeted it out first.
2: You said you um you had this long campaign to convince this this higher up person to talk. What is a what does that campaign look like for you? Like what's your argument vis-a-vis all of these other reporters who are trying to get the same people?
3: So I'm kind of a kill them with kindness person. <laughs> like, like I don't get very adversarial. You know, there have been a few conversations like that. But I think that, you know, um, first of all, it's like a slow approach. I've realized kind of over the years, you have to sort of educate people about the process and who you are and what it's going to look like, because they're scared of you. Of course they are. And, you know, they think like maybe you're going to like grab some quote that they say in the first 30 seconds of your phone call and use it. And you have to tell them, no, that's not what this is. Like this is and, you know, I'm not going to post some blog. We're going to have like a month's long conversation here. And there's going to be a fact checker who goes back and talks to you about it. So I think often what I'll do is, and I did that with this particular woman, is like wrote her a letter that was like, here's what I'm doing. Handwritten? Uh, No, it was typed. Typed, okay. Um, But wrote her a letter and it was during the trial. And so I like gave it to her attorney to give to her. And like, I felt like, like I could have just like approached her in the hallway. We were like in the same room for three months, but I felt like that was kind of intrusive and invasive. So I just did the letter. And sort of made my case to her. And then it was, you know, she didn't actually respond to that letter, but I then called her later, gave it some time. And, you know, I sort of usually in the first conversation, I tell people, like, this is not the interview. This is not an interview. Like, Mm -hmm. what we're doing now is we're just talking about the idea of you participating in the story. And that'll be a decision you make later and try to, like, answer any questions they have too. And how much of it
2: was in terms of reporting you waiting until the trial was concluded to try to get people? Cause I mean, it seemed like you did get, there were prominent figures that, uh, I mean, the story is not told with you in it. So it's not always easy to tell who's spoken directly to you and who's Mm -hmm. you've gotten their thoughts from their court files or their, their comments from the court files, but clearly some of the bigger figures were talking to you at some point. So how did you kind of navigate? I mean, these people are, are potentially going to prison. And so how do you convince them that they should give you their side of the story?
3: Yeah. So when they were like, when I, uh, I, I first published a story in the New York times magazine that was in 2018 and at that time, like, they'd all been indicted, but they had not gone to trial. Mm. And, like, under that circumstance, they're just not going to talk to you. Like, their lawyers are going to prevent that, you know. Like, if they give an interview that then, like, conflicts with testimony at trial, like, that is so-called impeachment material. It's going to come up on the on cross-examination. Like, you're saying X now, but I see you told the New York Times that Y. So that didn't happen. I did manage to speak to a doctor who was implicated in the scandal at the company so that was kind of a big get in the time story but then with the book yes like i mean part and part of the reason that the book exists and that i wanted to do it was like okay now i got to see the story through to the end and also it opened up the possibility that yeah at the end of this maybe i'll get, get access to these people and like, generally people won't talk to you until they're sentenced mm-hmm. and cause it also can affect sentencing. So even after the verdict, I had some waiting to do, but in fact, like almost a year of waiting before they were sentenced. So, so, um, it, it, yeah, there was some patience involved, but actually one of the key figures in the book, he talked during the period between the trial and sentencing. And that was like, it was an interesting scenario, the, U.S. Attorney's Office that prosecuted the case they made him available to me because he was a government witness Ah. he had decided to flip and you know he pled and cooperated and he still went to jail and he was someone who wanted to speak to media but they like very carefully babysat the situation so like they like summoned me to Boston and then I interviewed him in the U.S. attorney's office with like a bunch of the attorneys sitting around oh, the table. Wow. Yeah. And luckily after that, I was able to like talk to him in a more like intimate format. Um, but it, that was a, a bit of a pressure situation. It's a tough interview. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to get like the real story
2: out of him when the uh, U.S. attorneys. Yes. are yes. Standing around him.
3: And even though he eventually cooperated, there was still like not a lot of love between him and some of these attorneys in the room. So he was like, not exactly going to be like forthcoming about everything, I think, at that time.
2: I mean, this is, as you say, a unique situation of these, these corporate executives actually going to to prison for pushing this particular opioid on people. And Mm -hmm. do you feel like you were more interested in just telling the story as a great story or in this sort of larger issue of what is supposed to happen to people who have helped create this epidemic?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was always like, (laughs) you know, people would say to me like, well, what if they get acquitted? Or what if they get convicted? Or, you know, what if they plead before trial? That was my nightmare is that like, (laughs) every I, I pretty was 95 percent sure that wouldn't happen but i was still like holding my breath that if they all fled out or if the top guy died before the trial like you never know what's going to happen so i was worried about that because then all the dirty laundry wouldn't come out right. at the yeah. trial yeah um but i felt like kind of either ending would 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 sort of work for me but you're asking a deeper question which is like you know what should happen to these folks was this was this justice? um you know I, and i think I think that it was justice. I think they committed a pretty serious crime, but I think that's not the whole story here because ultimately, like their behavior was kind of like taking the industry norms and like dialing it to eleven. Mm-hmm. but like ten just inside the law is also pretty questionable so so that and that becomes kind of a theme of the book is that like you know how far outside the norms are we talking about here like i think a lot of what came out at the trial is like you know they had all kind of done this at their prior company too mm-hmm. and like selling the drugs know, off label for s- other promoting issues, drugs off label like and also like one of the big elements of the of the conspiracy was like essentially bribing doctors to prescribe the drug By like not a direct like literal cash bribe, but like hiring them for a a so-called speaker program that was essentially a sham. But it was like a way of like funneling money to them and like building the relationship. And there was a quid pro quo that was expected. Like you're gonna you're gonna write the drug. That's the terminology in the biz. (laughs) You're gonna write the product. And if you don't, you're gonna you're gonna get dropped from the speaker program and not get your like two grand a week to like appear at a dinner where like there's no attendees mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know it's supposed to be some educational forum where they're educating their like fellow doctors but like there were times so there clear. were no fellow doctors <laughs> S- well it's it, I mean, that, them. that whole thing is so wild because partly as you say what
2: becomes clear is that this is very common practice or at mm-hmm. least other companies were doing it mm-hmm. and that one of the things that really like fucked these people was that they just said to each other, like, no, no, it's a quid pro quo. Like in emails and other
3: places. <laughs> exactly. They actually like exactly. they
2: they just said what it was.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's like that stringer bell scene in the wire. Like, are you taking notes on a criminal conspiracy? <laughs> like they totally took notes. Uh, you know, one of the managers wrote an email that was like, No scripts, no programs. If you don't write the prescriptions, you're not getting paid. Like that, that's the message we need to deliver to the doctors. It's like Can you be any more direct? (laughs) And that's why, you know, they were kind of like an aggressive and sloppy startup. And like, I mean, startup, that's maybe a generous way of putting it, but they were like a smaller fish. There were a lot of people there who were sort of like getting a more senior role than they could have gotten if they worked at like Eli Lilly or Pfizer or whatever. And they hadn't learned how to phrase the email yet, you know? (laughs) Right
2: in terms of, uh, this is obviously like a huge amount of material. I mean, the, the flip side of like everything being revealed in a trial is you have an incredible amount of material to process. Are you a person who, I mean, this took years. Are you, did you, are you a right as you go kind of person or like gather everything, organize it. And then like, now I will start.
3: Hmm. Yeah. It, it It's a hybrid of the two. I mean, I definitely went deep on research and I think everybody has the experience where you're, unfortunately like research can go on infinitely like there's always more to discover and there literally were like there was this whole galaxy of litigation around this you know it wasn't just this one trial then like they brought like all these doctors got arrested around the country and then you'd have the shareholder suits and then you have the like insurance suits and and so there you know sometimes you read in a story like we went through a thousands of pages of court records and you're kind of like, really thousands? Well, it was thousands. (laughs) Um, and maybe tens of thousands, but pages, I'm sure it was tens of thousands. Yeah. Like
2: documents. It was probably. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's true. Um, but you know, there is no bottom to that. And, you know, eventually you meet the reality of like, okay, I got to get going. And, And when you do get going, even when you don't have complete information and you know stuff is coming, and like I said, I had to like wait for certain developments to occur, but I couldn't just like sit there on my hands waiting for the developments to occur. So I was writing in that period and it was like sort of frustrating because I knew that like I didn't know everything and that more was going to come out that was relevant to what I was writing. but you know, once you get going, it kind of like narrows the universe of stuff that you actually have to research. You start to see that like, okay, like the reader doesn't need to know that whole bit. So like, I, I can stop like wasting time and down that corridor. And, and so I think like getting going on the writing is sometimes just like a tool to, to increase your efficiency of research. Mm hmm. And do you I feel like everyone like there's
2: always this sort of like kill your darlings talk about writing and it usually refers to like you're killing off the sentences you think are beautiful. But I feel like it's my issue is more with reporting uh, when you report out something and I kind of get it in my head like if I don't put no one's ever going to know this. Like if I leave it out it will it'll just be lost and the idea of like getting over that and saying like no matter how hard you work to get it. It's just not going to make the story better to include it. Mm. Is that something you are able to do well on your own? It sounds like when you say narrowing, it sounds like
3: you are good at that. I, I mean, I think so. I think like this actually, the the book is on the short side. And like, I I I liked that. I was aiming for that. I felt like it wanted to move and move along at a good clip. So there's like, there is a lot that I left out. And there's also... There was a lot that, like for instance, the, the scandal, as I said, it wrapped up, it implicated all these doctors around the country. Well, each one of those cases was actually really interesting and it had its own universe of characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because each clinic had like patients you could talk to, the doctor, you could talk to the staff, you could talk to the instance sales rep who called on that doctor and not only talk to them, but there were court records about it all. But it's like, eventually, it's like, well, how many of these doctors are you going to cover in the book? Like, it's kind of, you know, you've got to sort of pick your battles. And, you know, the reader is only going to have a certain amount of patience. And, and you know, so you develop that empathy with the readerly experience, I guess. I feel like the, the, the thing that's sometimes tough is like, not just like cutting something, but like, <laughs> sort of ruthlessly condensing it, you know, because it's, it's somewhat boring material, <laughs> but like it might have taken you a month yeah. to like master what a ketam lawsuit is. So that's like, whatever. It's a big law enforcement tool in in the pharmaceutical business, and like it becomes like two paragraphs, and that sort of like does pain you sometimes, you know. And then like you know, in the end notes, you get to like do some explaining, but you're like, man, I could write a whole book about key Tams at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've gone real deep, <laughs> but but I'm just going to like explain it so the reader gets it enough to follow the story. And then I'm back to the story.
2: I feel like that applies to another area as well, which is sort of like the victims of opioid addiction and that they're just like, if you're reporting one of these stories, they're sort of endless truly horrifying stories of people who were fed drugs or got hooked on drugs and their lives were one way and then their lives ended up another way. And you can yes. follow those. How do you decide how much of that to include and how many of those people to to talk to? Because obviously that's a big part of this story is that's the ultimate victim. Mm-hmm. But how did you decide like how to kind of address that aspect of it?
3: yeah i wrestled with that a lot actually because i think it is ultimately like why does the story matter because there were patients at the other end of this and i think some people have a vision you know in opioid crisis stories and this is like there are instances of this where there's like there's a so-called pill mill clinic and then there's people who line up outside And they sort of, you know, look a certain part. They like look like they, you know, a Greyhound bus station or something. The image is like, it's not fair. It sort of portrays those people as addicts who are sort of like out to get their fix and doing this for recreation. That is totally not a fair picture of the situation. And certainly for this particular product that this company made is like a lot of these people and having talked to them a lot of them, I can say this with authority, they really had no, no idea what they were getting into. A lot of us trust our doctors. It's a natural relationship. You don't have the knowledge you don't have, you know, doctors have a lot of power. And some of them, like, they didn't really follow the news. They, the, 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 the opioid crisis was some vague thing that they didn't connect to this experience. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like prescribed a product. Okay like they didn't know about the deep unsavory relationship between the manufacturer of that product and the doctor. They had no clue. Why would they, you know? And none of us do like, we, and we, we might be a little shocked if we knew like what was going on in that same clinic, you know, that reps were there all day trying to take out the doctor to lunch and work them. So I, I really did feel for them. And I think in the book my approach was that a little of it would go a long way. And there were like some experiences that really crystallized for me, some interviews and, and, and one witness who, who, who testified at trial that like, you know, these people's lives were utterly changed and like perhaps ruined by, by being prescribed this product. And it wouldn't have happened if their if their doctor were like upstanding and responsible.
2: So now the book is getting turned into a movie. It has been turned into a movie. The movie is coming out. Indeed. Um, I want to talk about that process a little with you because I feel like that's a process that a lot of people are curious about, but tends to be a bit opaque and sort of looks one way from the outside and a different way from the inside. Plus many, many writers have had the experience of their thing getting optioned and never made. And you and I have kind of have a shared experience around that. Yes. Um, So first let's talk about the process of the book getting made into a movie. So what kind of role did you play? Were you a completely like hands off, like here it is, go? Or did they like fold you into the process? Can you describe the process?
3: Yeah. So I, I was, my role was basically as a consultant. I, I did not write the screenplay or co-write the screenplay. You know, they acquired the rights to the book and did their own thing. But I was kind of this sounding board and the screenwriter of the movie, this was a cool development for me. Cause like I, I had not known him previously, but was Wells tower who kind of like comes from oh, wow. my world, our world, you know, he's someone who's written long form magazine features, but he's also a, a very accomplished fiction writer. He has a great short story collection and like had sort of in the last decade or so had like started doing some screenwriting and he was one of the earliest people actually to take an interest in adapting this. So it was a fun kind of ongoing conversation. I felt like he was like a fellow nerd who was interested in the deep mechanics of the story and in how the sausage gets made in the industry and like wanting to get those details right. Even if the movie is kind of high spirited and sort of comic, there's a certain Wolf of Wall Street vibe of like the inside the halls of this company and like the culture of sales. And even if some things are kind of painted in brighter colors than they are in the book, you know, he wanted those things to be grounded in in fact and in in reality. And like, so that was sort of my role is to say like, yeah, no, that wouldn't happen or, you know, things like that.
2: Well, that's, I mean, you kind of, I think you kind of headed off some of my other questions because you, I didn't realize that it was Wells Tower who had written it, who mm-hmm. clearly is going to sort of understand this translation from reported fact into something that's going to be turned into dialogue that didn't exactly happen and everything that has to be done right. to turn it into a movie. So that might've allayed your fears along the way that you had him. How, how concerned were you about whether or not this movie is good? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, cause it, I mean, did, it-, it did
3: allay my fears. Absolutely. <laughs> that Wells was involved and that other like super smart people were involved. I felt like, first of all, like, One big worry is like, is this movie ever going to get made? And I think people understand that, that like every movie is like a long journey where the producer has to like push the ball uphill for several years and, you know, encounter all sorts of resistance. And like everybody tells you all along the way, like never count on it happening. And, you know, the producer would tell me like, I've had movies fall apart nine days before the shoot because the star left or whatever. So... I was sort of sweating that, but I had to like disconnect a little bit because it was like psychologically, you just can't, like I had no control over whether the movie was going to happen. So, you know, I could have asked for more updates than I did because I, you know, <laughs> and we'll talk about the white boy Rick experience, but that had like sufficiently scarred me that I was like, <laughs> I was like not interested in, in getting too psychologically invested. And I think similarly on the creative side, I tried to give them space to do what they were going to do. You know, the the movie was going to like take the book as an inspiration. The characters in it are composites often of like real people in the book and they were going to do their own thing with it. And they did. And it's
2: great. Did you get to do the, like the fun stuff in the end, like show up at the set and kind of watch bits of it being made?
3: I, I did. I did. They, they invited me to the set. I went to Atlanta and... Uh, it was a wild experience, re- kind of fun. You know, one thing that strikes you is like when you're writing a book, you're just like alone in your house typing. And a movie is so the opposite of that. It's a, it's a, an army of people it takes to to make a movie. And like there was a whole, on the day that I showed up, there was a whole like staging area where all the parking was. And then like a whole medical tent set up for the COVID testing. And then there were like eight shuttle buses that were like making a circle between there and the actual set. And, you know, they all had like the title of my book on, on the shuttle bus. <laughs> and that was a little bit trippy. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was fun. I mean, of course, like you show up and you're like, you're late, you know, I, I don't know. It was like the third week or something that they'd been shooting. And everyone's like, who's this guy? Like, like you're like the least important person in the room. No one cares. You know? Uh, oh, you wrote the book. Like, I didn't know there was a book, you know? Right. <laughs> There's a little of that. Um, but it was fun t- t- to watch. And, and uh, Emily Blunt is in it. And, and Chris Evans is in it. And Andy Garcia. And, um, you know, it was like fun to see them. There was more like, improv of lines than i expected and the sets were so elaborate and cool i just had fun taking it in <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i i personally was very happy to see it partly because uh i would be happy to see it no matter what but also like you had had this experience that we had together when you wrote the white boy rick story which is kind of like the other side of hollywood in, in some ways the other way it can go and go like badly um wow. <laughs> which was and i'll i'll set the i'll set the stage yes you should which is like we had like an atomist we had like a shared rights situation it was like a 50 50 situation but the atomist kind of like controlled the rights and we all kind of like discussed what we we're going to do and then the, the story got optioned by like so- sony yeah yeah sony uh universal universe got a, and it
3: happened quickly there that there were a bunch of bidders and everything and yeah it was a An exciting 10 days in my life.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like I had often and still do give people the advice that you sort of hinted at, which was like, you should celebrate this, but like, don't go out telling everyone they're going to make a movie out of your thing. And like, don't take this too far. Don't think this is going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. Yes. And you're probably the first
3: person who (laughs) delivered that
2: message to me. Yeah. But you could still enjoy it. It's like, it's a hard thing because it's a thing that's great. And financially, like you, you get something for it. And so it's like free money, you know, and it's exciting. But then to make a very long story short, it got turned into a movie and that movie was not the movie based on, it was, it was not from the option of the story. And you and I learned together a crazy lesson, which is like, even though they do option things to make them, they actually don't have to.
3: (laughs) Right, right. So what happened is like a competing project sprang up and that became the movie White Boy Rick. And and I have never seen that movie, which that, that sort of tells you right there how I feel about the whole experience. <laughs>
2: I haven't seen that movie, and it's
3: got Matthew McConaughey, who I love a Matthew McConaughey movie, you know, and in, in, under normal circumstances, I would have seen that movie. Right. And it was sort of frustrating when the movie was coming out. A lot of people were like, hey, congratulations, I see your thing got made. And I'm like, nah, actually, <laughs> I had nothing to do with that and didn't benefit from it.
2: That's the the painful thing is people might think, oh, look, oh, you must be doing great because this movie's out. It was a big movie it was out in theaters and everything else. Yeah. And in fact... If I could go a little deeper, mm-hmm. you know, you and I try, like tried to figure out what we could do about this because there was clearly material that was used for that movie that came from your story. And then, uh, we talked to lawyers and figured out that actually, once you put your facts in the public domain, anyone can use them, yeah. which then sort of raises the question, like, why does anyone option anything?
3: <laughs> Shh, don't go around saying that <laughs> um but yeah no it's true like i i felt like you know the crux of it was like you, it, if you're telling a true story you don't like therefore own the true story there are like facts that are out there in the world and things that you uncovered might be then used in a movie but that does, they don't owe you anything for that but there are elements of the story that are like Even worse than this sounds, I think that are that are sort of more unjust. But maybe we'll leave some of those unsaid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say, I mean, they're unjust enough that uh, it felt like we could do something about it, and that it became clear that we couldn't actually do anything about it. That not only could we probably not win like a lawsuit related to this, but like no one actually in Hollywood wanted to represent someone uh, pursuing such a such a lawsuit. No, like top flight lawyer was going to take on this case in (laughs) fact one lawyer said to us well if you did you make anything up like is there anything in the story that is fiction and we were like no it's not fiction it's not because we we went to great lengths
3: not to make anything up actually (laughs)
2: and he was like too bad because if there was something fictionalized that you made up that they used that's that is your ip that would give
3: you a case yeah that would give you a case yeah but
2: but holding these two experiences in your head, where are you left with the relationship between uh, journalism and Hollywood? Mm.
3: Yeah. I don't know. Proceed carefully, I guess, is is the lesson. Once burned, and then I got extremely fortunate that this second project, you know, made it across the finish line and you know i feel like it's to the credit of a lot of other people it's not necessarily me who pushed it across the finish line and you know obviously it's been fortunate for me that hollywood has taken an interest in my work but you know i hope that that's not like badly skewing what kind of like journalist journalism is getting written because it's like to me like journalism like that's my thing words are more my thing that's what i care about And so I view, like, a good piece of narrative nonfiction, whether it's a book or an article, as, like, it's a real art form, and I have great respect for it, and I think in a lot of ways we're sort of living in a golden age of it. So I don't totally like the idea of, like, that being just, like, a sort of way station, that article between, like, the writer and, like, Hollywood, you know? And it's a little depressing to me that, like, the level of money <laughs> is so out of whack with the level of money in our business, the level of money in Hollywood, and so that that sort of like is skewing the business a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's always. I always feel like uh, half a day of craft services on one of these productions would uh, pay for <laughs> pay for the articles that you actually actually uh, have based the entire movie on. I think the question is like what does it mean for the journalism part for these stories to get turned into? Because oftentimes you don't see it coming. So I think there are stories that are sort of clearly written to try to be optioned for movies. Mm -hmm. And there's sometimes like dubious journalism involved Mm -hmm. in those, but also like they don't always work out, you know, it doesn't always turn into a uh a movie so it's sort of like keeping that out of your head but i wonder if you can keep it out of your head if your book has actually been turned into a movie like that is (laughs) like you've 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 seen it all the way through from end to end
3: yeah i try you know i I, I, like you you know you just try to like keep doing your business and like it's sort of somebody else's business who works in hollywood and might see something in what you do i mean i think kind of stuff i'm interested sometimes is cinematic and like you know it's just like i'm interested in in great stories so are they you know yeah and and sometimes the converse is true of what you said is that like sometimes a story that might appear kind of like a little bit too cerebral and not visual enough like makes a cool movie like I remember when I heard that Moneyball was gonna be a movie and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's a like that's, how do you explain all that? That's a book, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a book about a guy who had a certain idea of like how you should value baseball players and how you should build a good team based on like market inefficiencies. <laughs> and I was like, How's that gonna be on the screen? But it worked out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so what are you working on now? You've um you just wrote an Atlantic piece recently about short sellers are you kind of doing magazine work right now do you have another book project in the works
3: so i'm gonna be a little circumspect about what i say there but like i yes i wrote the story in the atlantic about short sellers and a group of them of some of the more prominent ones in the field who are under investigation by doj and that was kind of It was kind of interesting to report like slightly earlier in the process than like, you know, in reporting on the Insta story, like none of these people have been indicted, but Mm. they still could be. Mm -hmm. And like often in that situation, people like that don't want to talk to press, but these guys are special kind of people who are sort of like, F you, Uh, I'll, I'll talk to whoever I want. And so that was that was fun. And it got me super interested in that world and in and in the world of finance. And like, it's not a world that I've always been interested in. You know, I sort of remember being in college and having a bunch of like classmates who were going into finance. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a snooze. But now I'm like, ah, oh, this is actually kind of really interesting, like intellectually interesting to kind of like analyze companies. And then there's some drama in it. You know, like you're taking a bet. Someone else is taking another bet. It's going to pay off for one of you, but not both. And and some of it involves like out researching your competition, yeah. out trading your competition and coming up with strategies and at least in the hedge fund world, which is what I wrote about, like it's cool stuff. So I'm kind of doing some continued work in that vein. I'll put it that way.
2: Is that a mode that you like to operate in to like enter these worlds and then stay in them?
3: Yeah, you know, I, it it hasn't happened that often for me. And I think like, I've never really had like a very specific beat. There was actually a period where I did a bunch of reporting about the publishing industry. And that was a period when, you know, sometimes editors would reach out to me on like, Oh, like, you remember when there was the battle between Amazon and Hachette? And that was like, yeah. so people would, say like oh do you want to write something about that you know because I had established some track record there but like generally then I would go and do something else and do something else kind of a generalist so I probably would have a better career if I had developed a beat (laughs) but yeah you do you do often have this sense of like curiosity and that you've immersed yourself in a world and you're like not quite done you know the article comes out and you're not quite done and I guess like that's kind of why I wrote the book of the insta story And this time I feel like I'm not quite done. Like I, you know, there's, and I'm still like texting with all the sources who are in that Atlantic story. And I'm still kind of like super curious about what's going to happen to them. And I just like this little world that I feel like is under known. Mm -hmm. Not quite done. I like that.
2: (laughs) We've both been in the, the magazine business for a pretty long time, seen a lot, uh, How do you maintain a level of optimism, if indeed you do, about being in this
3: particular business? At this particular moment? Yeah. I think, you know, the industry realities are what they are and they are kind of bleak. And like no one who's like been in the business, I don't think would like seriously challenge that statement. But I think people are still doing great work and I still like doing the work. And I think also on the other end of it, the audience is just as interested in reading this work as they always were, and maybe more so. And, like, you know, somehow that hasn't added up to like a thriving business model. And we could have a big argument about how that happened and the internet and, you know, Craigslist killing the classified ad and all of that. But that's just where we are. And, like, I think. The short answer is I don't have a great deal of optimism about the business, but I have a lot of optimism about the field and the practice, you know, that like people are going to go on writing good stuff and, and, and people are going to go on reading good stuff.
2: Well, Evan, thanks for coming on the
3: show. Thank you, Evan.
2: That's it for this week's show. Evan Hughes's book, Pain Hustlers, Crime and Punishment at an Opioid Startup, is available in paperback now. You can get it anywhere. If you want to catch the movie, Pain Hustlers, it's out in select theaters right now, and it's available on Netflix. Go check it out. Our show this week was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Our show notes were from Susan Peterson. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.